Praise the Lord, strong tower. Join me in saying praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. One more time, praise the Lord. Amen, amen. Before I share with you all what the Lord has placed on my heart to share, I want to open us up with a word of prayer. Father, we love you. We honor you. So thankful for what you have done in our lives and what you continue to do in our lives, Father. Lord, uh, we just, again, thankful for who you are and that you have called us to, to serve you, to worship you, Lord. And I pray that you prepare the hearts of those who, who will listen. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O oh God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I was around 12 years old. My brother and I, we were sitting over my grandmother's house. Her home was about 800 square foot. So it was about, it was my, my brother and I, and it was about eight of our cousins, close cousins. And we had just got in trouble for sneaking off somewhere we weren't supposed to go. So we found ourselves in a house. So the question was asked, Medea, because that's what we call my grandmother, what is your favorite thing to do? And her classic response, she said, whooping y'all's behind. <laughs> now, I'm not endorsing spankings of any kind, but that was just my experience. And you can just imagine she had 15 kids, so she was a disciplinarian. She had to be. But when I think about my, my grandmother as a disciplinarian, I'm reminded of the proverb that says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke, because the Lord disciplined those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. Just as the Lord's discipline is his expression of his love for us, Medea's, my grandmother's, her discipline, was her expression of her love for her grandkids and her great-grandkids. And considering how much discipline we received, we could be assured that she really loved us. <laughs> Amen. Now, going over to Medea's house was really our idea of vacation. As many of her grandkids and great-grandkids, we we and there were a lot of us, we would come together at her home. But a couple of things you knew that was going to happen, likely, when we went over her house. One is that you was going to eat good, so she was going to feed you, if you when you come over her house. The other thing is that you were likely to get a whooping because, again, we were rebellious young kids and she was a disciplinarian, so that was likely. But the other thing would happen when you went over my grandmother's house, is that you were going to Friendship Missionary Baptist Church. At her house, going to church was not an option. You were going to church. My grandmother knew that it took a village to train up a child. She said, I discipline you here to keep you from being disciplined out there. 
she will put the fear of God in us and then make sure we learn about him. Upon my grandmother learning that I was going into ministry, she, it was her desire to see her grandson preach in person. Because in her mind, it's a miracle. <laughs> so she never physically got to come and see her grandson preach before going to be with the Lord back in 2018. But I had the distinct privilege of eulogizing my grandmother and holding on to the hope that she was a part of the great cloud of witnesses. And as I eulogized her, I imagined that she stood in the presence of God, worshiping him, thanking him, and whispering in his ear. I knew those whoopings would work. <laughs> Again, I'm not endorsing whoopings. But my grandmother told, taught me the importance of a village. She would often say that it takes a village to train a child. She also taught me that that village not only starts at home, but the church was an important part of that village. Because again, for her, church was not an option. But she also taught me that I had personal responsibility because I had to go to church. I had to listen. I had to believe in Jesus for myself. So I had personal responsibility. And so this morning, I want to teach on the subject it takes a village. It takes a village. Now, a couple of weeks ago, Dr. Jewell warned us that there is an amber alert out on faith of God, faith in God. As the director of student ministry here at Strong Tower, the faith formation of students is very important to me. But there is an amber alert out on the faith of teenagers. According to the Fuller Youth Institute, roughly 50% of teenagers who grow up in church do not return after high school. Roughly 50%. There is an amber alert out on the faith of teenagers. As one who is joining God in the work that he is doing in the lives of students, this is important to me. Why are so many of our young people walking away from the church in faith? Is it because we have historically separated our young people away from the, the life and body of our big, the big church? And student ministry has, has historically been just segregated in a space of its own, and, and, and students have not been engaged in the life of church. Could that be a reason? Is it because historically the church, specifically youth ministry, has been so focused on entertaining students than teaching theological depth? Perhaps young people are being entertained to spiritual death. When I was in seminary, I remember reading a book called Soul Searching by an author named Christian Smith. I was sitting in a youth ministry class. This was a huge research study done looking at how well students could articulate and knew what they believed. He said that students' understanding of faith could be summed up in what he called moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. In other words, teenagers believe that being a Christian is about being kind to others and being good and doing good things. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. He said that teenagers believe that God is like a therapist 
Young people see God as being up there in heaven and we can call on, call on him when we need him. They don't see God as being active and present in their lives. There's an Amber Alert out on the faith of teenagers. Here's a fact. We have an adversary. The Bible says that this adversary, the thief, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He is an abductor of faith. The Bible also says that to be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in the faith. Perhaps we're not being sober-minded because our minds have not been stayed on Jesus. Perhaps we can't be watchful because we have taken our eyes off of Jesus. Perhaps we can't resist him because as Dr. Jewel discussed, we have put up idols in our lives where we begin to worship the creation and not the creator. Or could it be that we have, bus- that we have busied ourselves out of a relationship with him? See, we can be doing all kinds of amazing things, making an impact on the world, but we have to be careful that those things doesn't draw us away from Jesus. Will we take our minds off of him? Will we take our eyes off of him? Because there is an amber alert on the faith of teenagers. The question we have to ask as parents and as the church, what is it that we can do to help develop the faith in our young people so that they can endure in their faith? As parents, what is our role? As the church, what is our role? And for our young people, what is our responsibility? Because at the end of the day, parents can teach and disciple. The church can teach and disciple, but your faith has to be your faith. Young people have to take ownership of their faith. And we want our young people to develop a faith in God that sticks and endures. And it takes a village to make that happen. Now, the text I want to look at, because I think it's helpful for us this morning, is Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8. Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8. Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8. Now, this psalm, I believe, helps us as parents know our role in the faith formation of young people. This psalm helps us as the church know our role in the faith formation of young people. And I also believe that this psalm helps students know their responsibility in taking ownership of their own faith. And as we read this psalm, we will notice a very important theme throughout that will help us. Teach your children. Tell the next generation so that they know and set their hope in him. Psalm 78. Starting at verse 1, it says, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to, to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth as a, in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known, that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children. But tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might 
and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children. That the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments and that they should, should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. This historical psalm is the address of the speaker communicating to his people for their instruction. The speaker is communicating a divinely constituted duty that God has ordained as the responsibility of every generation of people. The teacher tells his listeners to pay attention to what he is teaching and listen to his words in verse 1. In verse 2, the teacher says, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. I'm reminded of when Jesus tells the purpose of his parables in Matthew chapter 13. It has two distinct purposes. One is to reveal truth to those who were willing to hear and believe. And two, conceal truth from those who willingly rejected truth because of their callous hearts. This is important here because of Israel's inability to trust God despite God's repeated act of faithfulness towards them. Those who give ear and incline their ears will hear and receive the truth. But those who do not incline their ears will not receive it and continue to harden their hearts towards God. What is it that the teacher is sharing? In verse 3, he says, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. In other words, I am going to teach you what has been taught to me by our fathers, things that I believe. He said, I will teach, and then he made a shift and said, we will not hide them from their children. But tell the coming generation, what is it that they will teach this coming generation? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> In verse 4, the second part of verse 4, he says, The glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. It is something to what the teacher is communicating. Then he goes on to mention the glorious deeds of the Lord, his might, and, his, and the wonders that he has done. He says, he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children so that they may know them. The teacher says, we must teach because we have a tendency to forget. Whether we are distracted, whether we allow the abductor of faith to to kind of snatch us or draw us away from Jesus. But we have a tendency to forget. Verse 5 points to Exodus 20 when God placed those Ten Commandments on the heart of Moses to share with the Israelites. God said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Oh, how quickly we forget what God is doing and what God has done. And turn to other things to put our hope in.
y'all hear me? All right. Now, the teacher here is speaking to us. What is he saying? Tell the glorious deeds of the Lord that the next generation might know them. As parents, we must tell the glorious deeds of the Lord to our children. Discipleship starts at home. As the church, we must tell the glorious deeds of the Lord. We, as the church, partner with parents and reinforce what prayerfully is being taught at home. Because the great I am has brought us out of the bondage of sin, we are obedient to him and his commandments. What is he commanding according to the psalmist? Tell our children and the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord so that they will put their hope in him, not forgetting his works, but follow him with their whole heart. This process does not yield automatic results where students will develop a faith that sticks. Students must submit themselves to his lordship, embrace God's grace, set their hope in God, and be obedient to him. It takes a village to train up a child. Now, what does that village look like? What is our function as we try to help students develop a faith that endures and that sticks? There's no magical formula. And furthermore, the village can do everything right. However, students have to make that decision for themselves. And I don't want parents to feel guilty or blame ourselves if our children, for whatever reason, uh, walk away from the faith. And there's so, so many placing blame on the church for why they're walking away from the faith. Now, I know that's not our church. But it may be someone out there somewhere listening who is struggling or perhaps trying to figure out how to engage in discipleship with their children. Discipleship starts at home. Don't grow weary. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. He tells Timothy, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois. And in your mother, Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So Paul acknowledges where Timothy's faith comes from. It's rooted. It comes from the faith formation of Timothy comes from his grandmother and his mother. But then Paul goes on in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Again, acknowledging that Timothy's faith comes from his mother and grandmother. But Timothy had responsibility. Paul tells him to continue in what he had learned, that what he had believed in. So Timothy had to believe that for himself. So it is clear that discipleship and faith formation of our children begins at home. I just read recently an article by that same author, Christian Smith, called Keeping the Faith. This article is essentially a summary of a book he recently wrote called Handing Down the Faith, How Parents Pass Their Religion On to the Next Generation. Now, I haven't read the book yet, but that article is really, really, really good. He concludes that religious institutions like the church 
and religious schools are losing its influence on young people. That the church and religious institutions are losing its influence on young people. And I want to read something that he, that he says in this, a passage from, from this article because I think it's important. He said, the good news is that, and this is a quote, the good news is that among all possible influences, parents exert far and away the greatest influence on their children's religious outcomes. Stated differently, the bad news is, it's only bad news depending on how you look at it. He says, stated differently, the bad news is that nearly all human responsibility for the religious trajectory of children's lives falls on their parents' shoulders. He goes on to say the empirical evidence is clear. In almost every case, no other institution or program comes close to shaping youth religiously as their parents do. Not religious congregations, youth groups, faith-based schools, missions and service trips, summer camps, Sunday school, youth ministers, or anything else. Those influences can reinforce the influence of parents. Those influences can reinforce the influence of parents. Then he says, but almost never do they surpass or override it. What makes every other influence pale into virtual insignificance is the importance, or not, of the religious beliefs and practices of American parents in their ordinary lives. Not only on holy days, but every day throughout weeks and years. Now, here's what he's not saying. He's not saying that religious congregations, youth groups, faith-based schools, missions and service trips, summer camps, Sunday schools, youth ministers, etc. is not important. He's not saying that. What he is saying is that they serve as reinforcement to what parents are doing or what we should be doing in the home. They are important because it takes a village to train up our children. In light of what the psalmist says in Psalm 78, what's been helpful for me as a parent in learning and, and, and seeking the Lord and how to disciple my young people or my, my, my kids, I love the way Moses says it in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 9. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 9. It says, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house. And on your gates. Because the old adage is true. Repetition aids learning. Moses says, you shall teach them diligently. You shall talk of them. You shall bind them. You shall, uh, they shall be as frontlets. You shall write them. In other words, we shall teach and tell our children of the glorious deeds of the Lord. The things that we have heard, seen, and experienced for ourselves. Let us not hide them from our children, but tell and tell and tell and teach. There must be strong intentionality that issues in constant instruction by word and deed about devotion to God. If faith comes by hearing the word of God, 
we must take every opportunity to tell of his glorious deeds, his might, and what he has done in our lives and as revealed in Scripture. Our lives are living epistles being read by our children. So they must see us living out our faith, not only on Sundays and maybe Wednesdays, but every single day of our lives. My babies, my children, they should see me worshiping the Lord, crying out to the Lord in prayer, serving him with my time, talents, and and treasure. Just yesterday, my youngest daughter, Elizabeth, she came to me, and she told me how she hurt her foot stepping on one of her her toys, you know, mind you, we, we constantly tell them to clean up, but she didn't listen. But it's all good. She hurt her foot stepping on one of her toys, and she came up to me and her, held her little foot up. And I grabbed her foot, and I just started praying over her foot. And then after I said amen, she said amen, and then she just went, went about her business. It was all good. So I can't expect my babies to see the value and importance of the local church if they don't see how much I value the local church. I can't expect them to love the Lord, our God, with all their heart, mind, and strength if they don't see me loving the Lord with all my, my, all my heart, mind, and strength. They have to see me living out my faith every single day, not only on Sundays or Wednesdays. But again, here's the thing. We have an adversary. And we live in a world that's hostile to God in many ways. And if my babies are not hearing and seeing how important church is in my home, if my babies are not hearing and seeing how important God is and how important faith is in my home, I better know that when they go outside of my home, they are hearing messages telling them why the church is not important. And why God and faith is not important. Discipleship starts at home. We recognize as parents our role in the lives of our children to take what we have heard and seen and experienced and teach them diligently to our children, but it takes a village. And we as the church must come alongside of parents and reinforce. See, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. It says, and let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another in all the more as you see the day drawing near. Here's something that I've been wrestling with. You see, if the Bible tells us not to neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some, then why is it so easy for us to neglect to meet together? Could it be that the reason, could it be, and again, this is something that I've been pondering, could it be that the reason why the church is losing its influence on young people is because it's losing its influence on us as adults, those who profess Jesus to be Lord and Savior? Elder Sherman mentioned last week that we come to church to get a word of encouragement, a word that challenges us, a word that may warn us, and a word of instruction. We can't be encouraged by the church if we're not present. We can't be challenged, and maybe we don't want to. We can't be challenged by the church if we're not present. 
We can't be warned or instructed by the church if we're not present. As the church, we are part of the village in training up children. We partner with parents and guardians in educating, equipping, and collaborating in discipleship to their children. As, again, as the director of student ministry, my focus is on gospel centrality. My prayer is that every single student that comes through the student ministry knows the gospel, have heard the gospel, believes the gospel, and are equipped and empowered to go out and share the gospel with others. In other words, faithfully proclaiming the good news of God's unconditional love for sinners through Christ. My focus is also on theological depth. Now, historically, again, as I mentioned, youth ministry was built around entertainment, which is no wonder why students see God as a therapist. That being being a follower of Jesus means being kind and doing good things, which, again, are not bad. And don't see God as being active and present in their lives. One of my peers, I serve on a steering committee I'm at a, at a youth ministry organization. And one of my peers, he said, if teenagers can handle the Pythagorean theorem, they can handle theology. <laughs> now, it made me think about my, my eight-year-old. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> it made me think about my eight-year-old and how last year she would, come, she would come home from school and she would tell me about the body parts, the bones, and the muscles that she learned in, in, in class. And I'm like, man, if my baby is learning about the intricacies of the body, then she can learn about theology. Amen? Amen. We must teach the whole counsel of Scripture. We cannot water down truth because we think students don't understand. We may use different methods to teach it sometimes, But the church must provide theological depth. It is important that specifically students sit in service and listen to the teaching of their pastor with their parents. Because it, again, is an opportunity for students to see their parents worshiping the Lord, crying out in prayer, and submitting themselves to, to leadership. It's important. We want to come alongside of parents and equip students with a biblical worldview. As the church, we have a role in raising up young people, telling them about the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done in the context of relational discipleship. See, one of the things that we try to do within the student ministry is we try to, to, take, we try to uh, encourage uh, spiritually mature adults and partner, partner them with a small group of students So that those students can know what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus, to follow him, and what it looks like to make disciples of Jesus. Discipleship is about relationships. And we cannot reinforce and make disciples if students are not present and engaged. Also, we cannot reinforce as the church and make the disciples if we don't have adults in the body serving. Here's the question. As the church, how can we expect young people to see the importance of serving if they don't see us serving? If we are not calling, if if we are calling them as disciples to make disciples, well, who is discipling them outside of the home? Are we as the church doing that? 
showing them what it looks like to be a disciple and equipping them and empowering them to make disciples. If we're not careful, the world will make disciples of our young people, telling them to place their faith in money, status, power, intellect, likes and followers on social media, telling them to put their faith in their talents, accolades and awards, grades, teaching them that it's all about self, to play savior when we really need one. As the church, we partner, we have to partner with parents by developing and nurturing relationships with our children. Research shows that each young person is greatly benefited when surrounded by a team of about five caring adults who know them by name and knows things about them, who pursues relationships with them. Five caring adults. Our desire is to engage in relational discipleship. In other words, doing what the psalm is instructed. Tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done in the context of caring relationships with students. That's a big need within not only the student ministry, but also the children's ministry. See, the Bible says that the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. So we are praying that the Lord of the harvest will send out laborers into his harvest. God is working and moving in the hearts of students, and he is inviting you and I to join him in the work that he is doing. God is saying, who shall I send? Who will go? And he is looking for those who will make themselves available and stand up like the prophet Isaiah and say, here I am, Lord, send me. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. And the Lord of the harvest want to send out laborers into his harvest and join him in the work that he is doing in the lives of young people. Discipleship discipleship begins at home as we tell our children about the glorious deeds of the Lord, his might, and what he has done. It is reinforced by the church where spiritually mature adults are discipling young people, telling the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord, his might, and what he has done in the context of caring relationships. According to the psalmist, we do this so that they, our children, this next generation, can know them and set their hope in the Lord, not forget his work and be obedient to him. In other words, so we can help them develop a faith that endures or a faith that sticks. But young people, Mama or daddy, grandma or granddad, auntie or uncle, pastor, they can't love the Lord for you. You all have to seek him and serve him and love him for yourselves. And I believe Jesus gives us an example of this in in Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 41. And I'm going to read it. He says, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't know it. Now, I wouldn't recommend that, you know, but, you know. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey 
But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Now here's, the, listen to what verse 46 says, starting at verse 46, it says, After three days, they found him in the temple. They found him in the temple. Sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said, Jesus, he said, why, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And, did, and they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in, stat- in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Now, young people, communicate with your parents. <laughs> all right? I, I, you know, after, when reading that, I was just thinking about my grandmother and what she would have done, and it probably wouldn't have been that response. But, but Jesus wanted to be in his father's house so that he could sit among his teachers listen to their teaching and instruction and so that he could ask questions. As a result, the Bible says that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Our faith must be our faith. We have to take ownership of our faith, young people, and not live through the faith of our parents or guardians. We can't live through the faith of our our children's director or student ministry director. You can take ownership of your faith by setting your hope in him not forgetting his work and actively following him. You can grow in your faith by looking at Jesus' example by being in your father's house, sitting amongst teachers, listening and asking questions. But here's the thing. Again, you know, the Lord has been challenging me. We as parents in the church have to provide a safe and brave place for our young people to ask tough and hard questions. And one of the things that I've been thinking about is like, how can I be a a safe place, a resource for my young people if they're they're being challenged with with some kind of sin or some kind of temptation? Am I a safe place? And I think us as parents, we have to ask ourselves that. Are we a safe place for our, our young people to come to when they're challenged by temptation, by the flesh, when they're being challenged? And as the church, are we a safe place for our young people to come to and ask tough questions and hard questions. During the track season in my sophomore year, my coach had this bright idea of putting me in a new event. I had always been an 800-meter runner, but he said because I put on about 15 pounds that year, It would be like me putting on a weight vest and trying to run around a track. So he told me that he was going to put me in the 400 hurdles. But here's the problem. I had never ran the hurdles before. And he wanted me to learn in a week. So Monday through Thursday, Monday through Wednesday, they taught me the basics of hurdling. 
He would constantly tell me the most important thing you can do, count your steps in between hurdles. He said, focus your eyes or fix your eyes on the hurdles. You will get tired and the hurdles will be coming at you fast. But don't lose focus. So Monday, he told me the same thing. Count your steps. Fix your eyes on the hurdles. Don't lose focus. Tuesday, he told me the same thing. Count your steps. Fix your eyes on the hurdles. Don't lose focus. Wednesday, he told me the same thing. Count your steps. Fix your eyes on the hurdles. Don't lose focus. And on Thursday, he wanted me to do a time trial. And so when I got to the line, he said, remember what I taught you. He said, count your steps. Fix your eyes on the hurdles. Don't lose focus. And I started off great. (laughs) But at one point, that lactic acid started setting in. I started getting tired. I I couldn't remember how to count. (laughs) I took my eyes off the hurdles. I lost focus. I hit that hurdle and I fell to the ground. And I just laid there. I took my eyes off of the hurdles. I lost focus. See, it reminds me of what Paul asked asked the Galatians. He asked them a very important question that I believe we have to ask ourselves as it relates to faith. He said, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? We have so many hurdles in our lives, a world that tells us that evil is good and good is evil, an adversary who is a liar and deceiver who wants us to lose focus and take our eyes off Jesus so that we can fall away from the faith and disqualify ourselves. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, Since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. In other words, those who have endured in their faith, who kept their eyes fixed on Jesus. It goes on to say, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Parents, let us tell our children of the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Let us live out our faith before our our children. Church, let us tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might the wonders that he has done in the context of relational discipleship so that they can set their hope in the Lord, not forgetting the works of God, but following in the ways and in the words of Jesus. And I want to leave us all with the words that God, through the Holy Spirit, gave Paul to proclaim to the Colossians. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. It says, therefore, as you receive Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Again, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith 
just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. We have so much to be thankful for. You and I should be thanking God for sending his son to live the life we should have lived and die the death we should have died in our place, raising from the grave, defeating sin and death and offering the free gift of salvation to those who repent and place their faith and hope in Jesus. I pray that we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and set our hope in him alone, not forgetting his work, his might, or what he has done, how he has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. To God be the glory. It takes a village. And I pray that we can live worthy of our calling. Amen.